After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest? Are you holding on to secrets, fears, or frustrations? We all carry around different stressors, both big and small. Don't keep it all bottled up inside. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's also a great way to learn to resolve conflict, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeHereNow. Welcome to the CSM Podcast with David Nickturn. Creativity, spirituality, and making a buck. Blending spiritual and temporal realities, joining heaven and earth. We will be talking with a variety of manifestors, individuals who have, in one way or another, clarified their vision, created an offering, and brought that offering to the marketplace. Let's see what we can learn from them as we each move forward towards solving our own life puzzle. Facing the challenge of living in the spirit, in the body, in the world, in this time. If you're interested in supporting the CSM podcast, please visit eherenownetwork.com forward slash David. You know, we are brainwashed to think that the value of success means how much money did it make, how many people came, and how much positive feedback did it get. Now, the actual truth of the value of a project is how much learning was there, how much intimacy was there with the people, how much joy was there, how much service was it to the planet, um, how much, you know, did the real values that fulfill us get fulfilled. Hello, and welcome back to the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast with David Nickturn on the Be Here Now Network. My name is Michael Cammers, David's student and your host. I have the good fortune of setting the table here for us in our intro on episode number 23, featuring the accomplished musician, filmmaker, and teacher, Jamie Cato. As you may suspect from the excerpt of Jamie we started this episode with, he really embodies the three threads of creativity, spirituality, and right livelihood that we explore on this show, and we are excited to share this conversation with you. Be Here Now listeners may be familiar with Jamie already as the director of Becoming No One, the documentary released in 2020 that explores the arc of Ram Dass's life and teachings. Perhaps others of you may be familiar with Jamie's musical projects such as Faithless and One Giant Leap. 
Fortunately, David and Jamie really hit it off in this episode with a really honest, fun, and vulnerable conversation spanning all these highlights and sharing their individual journeys with each other, which, as you will see, have some surprising overlap. Also, bonus points to Jamie for eliciting the largest belly laugh from David in CSM pod history. And now, Jamie and David. So, um, first of all, welcome, Jamie, to the creativity spirituality and making a buck podcast um just Thank for you your well for your reference that title is the title of a book that i wrote and it seems so um um synchronous with your offering so i, I thought we could sort of walk, move around through those three t- territories and i'm tempted to ask you uh creativity spirituality and making a buck pick two <laughs> if you can yeah, only pick two funny, what would um, you pick Oh, creatively, spirituality, and making a buck. Pick two. That means I've got to drop one. Uh, yeah, I would say creativity and making a buck, and don't worry about spirituality because that takes <laughs> care of, that takes care of itself. <laughs> so um, doesn't get involved in that stuff. But we do share, you know, a, 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 the notion of actually doing trainings and workshops with people. I'm a Buddhist teacher mm-hmm. and we're also musicians. So um, I, I listened to some of your music. I thought I could start there if you don't mind. I'd love to. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, there was one album, um, which is These Are My Diamonds by The Happening. Oh, I love that record. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that leapt out at me and for a couple of reasons. Uh, one tune in particular, which is Oh My Heart, I thought was... Uh, would be a nice mm. one to play it, play at my memorial service, you know? Yeah, it's a sad one. Yeah. We're called Oh My Heart because it's so sad that when you listen to it, you go, oh, my heart. <laughs> That's why we called that. Yeah. And, and I was wondering, I don't know, are you playing some of the instruments on there? Are you composing? On and off. You... I'm more composing and directing. It's a okay. wonderful project that's happening. It's like um, I love making film music three quarters of all the music I listen to is film music. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I love Morricone. I love Alberto Iglesias. I love the great film scorers. Um, and yet I'm not great at doing film scores for other directors. You know, when someone hires mm-hmm. me to, to score something, I'm not really interested to do it how someone else wants me to do it. I never have mm-hmm. been. Mm-hmm. So, but I still love making that kind of beautiful improvised music so i started this project called the happening which is like making film scores for movies that don't exist uh-huh. so i gathered <laughs> gathered together a group of master musicians come up with a theme and i start telling a story and we've all plugged in live and as i start this is the bit where they're saying goodbye to each other on the train platform and they don't know if they're going to see and then all the clarinets creep in and the strings and everybody starts playing and improvising every track is only played once and improvised once but they're such great musicians that they always nail it and then we edit it a bit at the end and um we just make a beautiful film score for a movie that doesn't exist and they all have very different themes that's a great byline film scores for movies that don't exist yeah, and some of the best albums I've ever made. They take five days. Uh-huh. Uh, it's like it's like it's like health camp for musicians because they don't uh-huh. need to worry about the charts. They don't need to worry about making it okay for the for Elton John or whoever they usually play with. Um, they're just doing it to really express their mastery and their enjoyment and how being in love with their instrument. 
And so I rent or someone gives me a beautiful house. Sometimes we pay for the family to go on holiday somewhere, take their house, turn it into a recording studio, make their main room, the live room, and everyone's just, and we have beautiful catering. And for five days, we just eat well, tell each other our stories, play music all day. And at the end of five days, we mix whatever we have. And so uh, is the music composed? Are there are there any kind of um, orchestrations or charts or this people are just improvising? Improvising, all just, wow. all just playing, playing by ear. Because there were quite quite well articulated melodies and sections yeah. delineated. It didn't it didn't sound like a kind of a jam session. Well, at sometimes all. we'll play it once, and then we'll go. That was good. Let's just do that again. And at this moment, when I give this signal, everyone do this, you know, and then we do it again. Those those are the delineations. It has a, a, a flavor that reminded me of. Um, well, yeah, there's a sort of a, if I could say, a kind of Jewish feeling to it. Yeah, well, it's, it's, the theme for These Are My Diamonds was set in the second, it's like a story about the Second World War in Russia. Um, it's also uh, got, a pirate, it's got a pirate theme that goes on um, during it as well. But mm-hmm. um, it was funny because that, that was the second happening album. And I was in Berlin um, and a family had hired me to run an intimacy workshop for them and their friends. They were a very wealthy family. And... Um, and over dinner after the workshop, the they were asking me, you know, how's your music going? You know, like, what have you done since One Giant Leap? What? And I started telling them about different projects and I started telling them about The Happening. And the guy goes, wow, when you started telling me about The Happening, your eyes really mm. came alive. Like, I can really see how much you love that. Would you like to do one in my mansion in Berlin? You know, I'll pay for all the musicians to come. I'll fund the whole thing. I think, yeah, I would love to. So they gave us their house and paid for all the musicians to come and, and catering and, and everything like that. And the, the second one, and he said, my wife is a singer, but she very rarely with the kids now gets to sing with really great musicians. So I'd really appreciate it if she could sing on a few of the tracks. And she was a beautiful person who had a beautiful voice. I said, absolutely wonderful. So we did this session. And um, at the end of the week, it had been so heartfelt. And so we'd all fallen in love with each other incredibly during the five days we were all playing. And I said to her, isn't it so beautiful? Your husband is so you know wealthy and he could get you anything that he knows you so well. The, the gift is this quite expensive <laughs> music session. And she looked at me, she put her hand on her heart and gestured to the room full of leads and amplifiers and music. She looked at me, she went, these are my diamonds. Oh, and that's where the title came from. Yeah, then I thought, ah, oh, that's the title. Oh, very nice. It's a beautiful album. And, and it also reminds me a little bit, well, first of all, I'm I'm sort of Russian and Polish Jewish. So it, it landed right in the middle, middle of my, you know, kind of uh, sensibility. And and I guess in that regard, something about it reminded me a little bit of Leonard Cohen. Are you a Leonard Cohen fan at all? I'm more of a fan of him than I am of his music. Like, I, uh-huh. I love his vibe. I haven't listened to a lot of the production in his music, especially the sort of slightly childish backing vocals. I, I don't find that easy on my mm-hmm. ear, um, the actual production of his stuff. But him, right. yeah, I absolutely love. Yeah. Um, there's a track on These Are My Diamonds where I cover a Tom Waits song. I sing a, a uh-huh. version of All the World is Green. And then there's another track on it, which is just the after-dinner prayers music that my grandfather and family used to sing on Friday nights. You know that song? La, 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 la. Oh, yeah, sure. So I just always felt such a connection to that melody. So I just started singing it and everyone started creeping in and we did a really beautiful, gentle version of that 
piece as well, um, which is called A Certain Prayer, I think is what we ended up calling it. Mm. And we all started crying at the end. It got quieter and quieter. And, and some of the musicians who were playing it and singing it were like German, blonde-haired, blue-eyed descendants of Nazis, basically. Oh. And we were doing it in a house right in the middle of Berlin. So everyone felt like we kind of opened up this kind of healing portal uh, and everyone started crying on the last note of a certain prayer, the guitarist and the keyboard player and me, we were all on the floor because we go lower and lower as it gets quiet. The way that we, the way that we make quieter and louder is going closer to the floor or higher up. And we were all like with our heads right down on the floor. <laughs> and we just started weeping together that we had done this in Berlin. And could you imagine 80 years ago, you know what I mean? It was, it felt so, so healing and powerful for us. And are you, what instruments do you play? Is, is there one instrument that's your favorite to play when you're playing? Yeah. I mean, I guess I play acoustic guitar and secondarily I play piano and drums and sing. Um, I play enough to compose. So mm -hmm. the one you like, the Oh My Heart, I kind of wrote that on the guitar very badly. And then I get one of the master musicians to play it properly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wonderful. So, uh, you know, one can't help but notice about you that you're very multi-faceted um and that's sort of the theme or thread of the podcast and of our uh, uh community we have a community called dharma moon and there's a lot of artists and people in it, but everybody's meditating and it's sort of got a buddhist backbone spine you know um, there's a lot of you know meditation training that's part of it but we're not trying to we're trying to open that up that portal up so that it it sort of mixes gracefully with everyday life, with business, with um, mm -hmm. creative expression. So our, our sort of, our motto is that, you know, that spiritual um, development and uh, creative expression and everyday and, and everyday mastery of everyday life have equal weight. Yes. That's very much a, my school in England, which is called the, the school for the insanely gifted is exactly the same, pretty much exactly the same model. Yeah, I, I can see that in your in your website that there's a. So, do you feel at times torn between uh, three lovers? No, I, I find <laughs> it really strange that I find it strange that I get asked this so much by journalists. Like, I can't imagine why anyone wouldn't do it that way. Like, <laughs> why would you only do one thing? I mean, like, do one thing and do it lots of times, you know. But there's ten, plenty of space in the day to try out making a movie. There's plenty of space in the day to parent a child there's plenty of space in the day to develop a digital app that you think might be interesting you know like why not just anytime you have a good idea start it off see what kindles i mean of course out of every idea i have you know out of every hundred ideas five will actually kindle um but just you know chuck them all in the frying pan and to see see because you know sometimes they just they just kindle by themselves so so easily um that you know you, you if you've got like a vision if you can articulate what you want you don't actually have to do that much you know like mm -hmm. most of it is if you've got a cool team of people everyone's doing their thing everyone's getting an equal share of the money at the end so everybody's like personally invested um and you have such a beautiful intimate connected enjoyable time the money isn't the, the top thing. I mean, we all hope it makes money. Mm -hmm. um, but when we make it only about it's only a success if it makes money, then that usually sabotages it. Um, so we hope it makes money. 
Um, but we have such a good time with each other and fulfill ourselves in all our other values of was it good for the world? Did it do any service? Did we learn? Were we intimate? Were we joyful? You know, all the actual values of life that are fulfilling that you know that whether it did make money or didn't make money at the end, it was still time well spent. Um, that, of course, is um, a vision statement of its own. Uh, and then, you know, the conventional wisdom is if you don't focus on something, you know, and you spread yourself thin, uh, that sometimes the various elements of it don't thrive. That's the conventional point of view. I'm, I'm with you. I, I'm much more coming from the same perspective, but it does come down then to integration and sort of, uh, you know, handling the business end of something cleanly, clearly. Um, yeah. You know, you know, it's interesting, like uh, Krishnadas, uh, who, who I mentioned that I, you know, produce his records and play guitar with him, actually handles the business that they do very cleanly. It's an interesting part. They don't, make a big deal about it, but it's, it's, yeah. uh, you, you don't get the feeling of like, wait a minute, you said this and that's happening and what happened to this and what happened to that. So yeah. there is a model there, I think, for doing, for doing creative work with a good business alignment, but, but don't you have to pay some attention to it? I mean, yeah, you, yeah, you, like you do your absolute best to make it thrive. Absolutely yeah. do my mm -hmm. best. Mm -hmm. But like the way it's happened for me is like, you do all your work over here Mm -hmm. And you think that that's where it's going to come from. And then the big breakthrough comes from over there. Like it, <laughs> it, you still, you try your best, but it never comes out the way. Like I, all, every single time I've got a big budget to do something, mm -hmm. I was always, always, and I talk about this in my project masterclass. Like I have a, pro, a workshop called What About You? Bring Your Dream Project into the World is my flagship, one of my flagship workshops. And, um, and I can say this with my hand on my heart, not once, Every single time that I've I've got a big budget for something, I've never been in the meeting I was supposed to be in. I've never once gone into the meeting to get the money and got the money that I was supposed to get from that meeting. Not ever in once in my career. Not once. No, I'm not saying rarely. I'm saying never. Every single time I got get someone gave me a big hunk of money for something, I was I was there for something else. Um, and that, that, <laughs> that's how God seems to work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know. Try teaching that in school. That's going to be tricky. But, um, yeah. you know, we, we talk about tendril. Do you know the concept, the Buddhist concept of tendril or auspicious coincidence? I think I can imagine. Yeah, you that's know, you a big start with topic. The right attitude. You, it probably sounds like the law of attraction. You come with the right attitude mm -hmm. and you're doing it in the service of God. Then I trust that God is going to make the things kindle that God wants to kindle that week. It's not up to me. It's like when I teach a workshop. I don't have an agenda that you're going to break through and have a big life change. That would be really arrogant and like using mm -hmm. your process for me to feel good about myself as a teacher. Mm -hmm. I make a beautiful banquet of food. Mm -hmm. It's up to the souls to decide who comes and who eats and how much they eat and whether they leave at lunchtime or have three bowls full. It's none of my business. My job is to make the beautiful food. Whether God decides that the whole world is going to hear about it or just one person listen to it at the traffic lights and change their life, you know, it's just not our business. Yeah, and the moment we start getting into the effect, the moment we start getting into the fruits, the the, the output, then we are. Who are we doing that for? You know what I mean? Like it's kind of selfish. It's like using the people in the workshop so I can feel good about myself as a teacher. It's the same with projects. You know, we are brainwashed to think that the value of success means how much money did it make, how many people came, and how much positive feedback did it get. <clears throat> Now, the actual truth of the value of a project is how much learning was there, how much intimacy was there with the people, how much joy was there, how much service was it to the planet, um, how much you know did the real values that fulfill us get fulfilled. 
if we only concentrate on the money, for example, then I look at, at making a project as a devotional act. Mm-hmm. I'm not, the project isn't, it's like having a child. The child's not there to get you something. You're there to give to the child. And it's the same with a project. The, the project is this incredible thoroughbred horse. My job is to groom it, keep it clean, give it the best oats it can have, you know, which might be the best mixing engineer, um, the best manager, you know, like just give it the best I can possibly give it with the, the, the resources that I have. If I'm going there saying the only reason that this is worth doing for money, what I'm doing is I'm taking that thoroughbred horse and I'm saddling it like a donkey to carry my money worries up the hill or to carry my self-esteem worries up the hill. And that's not its job. That's not being devotional. That's using the project to get something. And I just don't believe in that. You know, like I was very moved by the book Autobiography of a Yogi. Uh, where Paramasanda Yogananda just basically just puts himself in God's hands. He gets on a train and he just says, all right, I'm, I believe that I'm the, here to serve you. Like, I'll just show up. I'm leaving the rest to you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> send the people. And that's what I've done like with my workshop business. I don't really do nearly any advertising. You know, I post on Facebook, something's happening. I don't even put a link because when you put a link there, the algorithm takes it out of everybody's feed. So I don't even, I don't even put a link to the event. I just say, hey, insanely gifted is happening in September or the Corfu event is free. And always someone donates something that probably made more money than if I'd actually charged. Um, it's, that's kind of the way it goes. You know, um, I've had plenty of times where, you know, I did a big project and you'd think it would make lots of money, like one giant leap. We got nominated for two Grammys. We sold half a million albums. We blah, 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 blah. I know I've never seen a penny of royalties from one giant leap, not a single penny since we did it. But while I was doing One Giant Leap, I wrote a song for Dido, who happened to be the backing vocalist in one of our other groups. And that one afternoon of work made me more than half a million dollars um, just from being, having a track on her album that sold 16 million copies. So, like, who knows where it's going to come from? You know, that the money I should have made from One Giant Leap to support my family for five years came from one song, one afternoon, instead of that whole project that took me three years of my life. You know, it's a mystery. Don't even try and work it out. Just keep showing up generously, following your enjoyment. That's what I believe. And be of service, you know, like love, serve, remember, you know, love what you're doing. Try and have an element of service in it. Be generous. Like my business is 100% inclusive. We have a ticket price for the workshop, but if you can't afford it, you're welcome to come anyway. So I hope you pay but I'm not making you paying a prerequisite for you being there. And then enough people will pay. And then someone else at the end will come and chuck a thousand bucks in your pocket just because they were so blown away and they're loaded. And then it just kind of all added up in the end. That's been my experience, but I can't, you know, say that you have to really, really commit to it. You have to really like jump into God's hands, you know? Yeah. Abandon all hope of fruition. That's a Buddhist slogan. (laughs) Sort of similar. Like it's so many different, whenever you do any projects, you're mm-hmm. rolling a thousand sided dice. Mm-hmm. The amount of different chaotic things that have to happen for something to fly, even if you have a massive marketing budget, is a mystery. So and so liked it. They were in a good mood that day. Mm-hmm. They said so and so. They heard it while they drank their tea. They decided to play it. Someone else liked it. I mean, it's chaos theory times a million. You can't, you just don't know who's, you know. Who could have thought that Nora Jones doing a lounge jazz album was going to scoop 12 Grammys and be the biggest album for five years? A lounge jazz album. They would have laughed you out the room if they, if any, for the idea that a lounge jazz album, which basically sounds like the girl from Ipanema we worked 12 times, was suddenly going to become the biggest thing that ever happened. Like It's just a total mystery. Well, I can relate to this 
uh, Jamie, because I wrote a song called Midnight at the Oasis. There you um, go. That's probably that, that was the half your adult life. That was an evening on a waterbed with a beautiful friend. Uh, probably 20 minutes to write this song. So I think... And it supported you, know, you for decades, no? Yeah, indeed. And, and um, uh, as I... Um, I, I visited with Lenny Warnker, who produced that record, and and I gave him some Japanese tea cups, and I the, at, with a haiku that said, um, "You know, thanks for financing my Buddhist education." <laughs> exactly, so it's you like know, total mystery. Like when I did the second one, Giant Leap, we yeah. spent a small fortune doing that project. Ah. The first one cost a hundred grand. Wow, <laughs> that was nothing. The second yeah. one, I had been asked by Annie Lennox to direct her videos. And so I've been working with her and going to the mm. studio and everything. And she said, oh, you've got to go meet my manager, Simon Fuller. Typical Jamie does no due diligence, doesn't know that Simon Fuller is the biggest mogul in entertainment who right. runs Exeter and Pop Idol and the Spice Girls. And I just thought, oh, he's Annie's manager. So I show up at his place. He doesn't take external meetings. So when I went in, and it was like, who's this guy going to see Simon? And so Simon, the first thing he says to me, he's this beautiful, such a cool guy. He goes, uh, we're not doing the videos. I'm so sorry, but but Annie has upset Clive Davis by releasing the picture of herself with no makeup on as her album cover mm-hmm. after especially mm-hmm. told them they didn't want it. They'd cut her video budgets. I'm sorry, we won't be able to do it. But what are you doing with the next one, Giant Leap? And I was like, ah, oh. I wasn't pitching. I was just like, oh God, we don't want another record deal again. It's like a bank with the worst interest rate in the world. We just want a backer, you know, our genius, their money, 50-50. I think that's how it should work. And he went, yeah, that's interesting. You see that guy through the glass over there? That's my head of accounts. Go and show him some of your numbers. The next day they gave me $3 million. <laughs> what a great story. Yeah, that's how it works. It's like you just. Well, you're, you're, you're connected to some kind of flow uh, state and. I'm curious, like, you know, Lakshmi, I, I, the Lakshmi flow state. Lakshmi. Okay. That, well, I was going to get that specific about it. But of course, since we also know each other through the Ramdas uh, Maui retreats, and since you, um, uh, you know, directed and produced uh, Becoming Nobody, uh, which is, mm. you know, uh, probably one of the more recent uh, summaries of his phenomenal existence. And yeah. since he's such a special connection, would you consider yourself a bhakti? Would that be fair to say? Is bhakta uh, devotional? Uh, is devotion the sort of uh, gateway yeah. for you into into the spiritual realm? I'd never thought of it that way, but that is how I am with my daughters. I've got three daughters. It's the most important thing in my world. You know, the, the making becoming nobody was an act of devotion. It was just an act of thank you. I love you. I mm. want to make the endless bottle of medicine that is Ramdas available forever. So anyone can watch that movie. I imagine like in the year 2762, people will be on a little spaceship to a retreat in Neptune and they'll go, Hey, let's all get retro and take acid and watch the Ramdas movie. Like it's, it's available. Once you've made something and finished it, it's available forever. You know, as long as people can watch movies, they can watch that movie. And I just wanted to, I, I made, I made all my projects, including that one. I made totally selfishly. I wasn't kind of making it, it was kind of devotional. Can it, can one be devotional and totally selfish at the same time? It's a funny paradox, but it was like, it, it was my pleasure. It was like, I wanted to do, because I thought it needed to be done mm-hmm. for me. It's like giving money to charity is kind yeah. of still a selfish act. Yeah. But like Anthony DeMello says, let's just say we've got great taste in our selfishness. Um, my pleasure was for that to exist. 
yeah. for everyone to get how funny and menschy Ramdas is because none of his mm-hmm. other movies are funny. They're all deep, mm-hmm. but they're not funny. Um, and for me, it's his it's his cute, irreverent, mm-hmm. sacred foolness that is my big turn on with him. He's naughty, you know. He's he's Captain Mischief. Yeah, and and I love that about him, and I'm like that as well. I'm an agent of chaos in my life, you know, um, which has not always helped me. Um, but I like disruption, you know. I like what mm-hmm. Jenny Holzner, the word artist in New York, said. She said, "Spit a mouthful of milk over someone if you want to learn something about their personality fast." So <laughs> sort of very, <laughs> very compassionate, <laughs> compassionate disruption. Yeah, chaos. Um, well, you know that that film has some also has some interesting um, aspects to it, which you know different people I'm sure tune into different parts of, of the the work that you're doing. But what I found intriguing is he's talking, and then you're showing footage of other situations. That you're yeah. almost it's almost like the illustrated man. You're illustrating uh, yeah. what what it is he's talking about. And you're choosing one time it's a little cartoon, and one time it's just as you know maybe some street you- event that's happening. Yeah, and I found that really, um, you know, like counterpoint, you know, but yeah. but really, really great choices. I thought that was my my opinion was that that in itself made a little bit of a, a movie within the movie of just what you chose to show while he was uh, speaking about things. It was kind of, um, you know, uh, allegorical or metaphorical and and, and visual. Kind of, yeah, trying to back up the essence of what he's saying and not exactly. the literality. Yeah, and. Um, you know, it's you got to be with him uh, right before he passed away. Or did, when's the last yeah, time you saw him? I was blessed to, to be with him quite a few times. First, when I was like in my very early 20s, when my girlfriend was pregnant, like about 26, 27 years ago, um, all the way through the first one giant leap. He, he generously contributed, let me interview him for the first one giant leap around mm-hmm. the millennium. Then he was in the second giant leap in 2008. Then we hung out a bit more uh, some of his retreats and then finally at the end uh, just before it wasn't actually you know the interview was done about five years before he passed um because i i it's funny you say about the imagery in the mu- in, in the movie because the rest of the movie the music and and him talking and his parts i almost edited that in the first that was done in 2015 you know like that part was easy i knew all the best stories i've been such a fanatical ramdas fan I knew all the many of the bits I wanted to use, you know, really early on. The thing that took time was visually making the shots so that it didn't just look like a glorified YouTube video with flowers opening and clouds rushing and you know, like to <laughs> and, you know, how could we make it actually like a movie, you know, like yeah, a, a right. funeral. And that was what took five years was finding all the shots affordably. Yeah. Um yeah. yeah, it's 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 non-linear. It's not like this looks like that in a literal yeah. way. It's sort of, it, it, as you said, that you're capturing the kind of flavor of, of it. So, um, you know, we I did. did it five I, times. You did what five times? I, I cut the film and, and started again five different times, all because of the visuals, because I couldn't find a way to make it special. And and the the poor, I didn't go over budget at all, but. I went over time budget. You know, we never had a deadline, but mm-hmm. poor Ragu had to keep going back to the Ramdas board saying he's starting it again. And then I did a cut, uh-huh. which was just pictures of my daughters and I loved it, but no one else got it. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I did all these different cuts and it was, and, and it was, um, it was 
also affordably because you know the movie was very very inexpensive so three quarters of all the shots you see were free mm. off free websites you know mm-hmm. and I would, I would put the word out to all the camera people i knew and say look i need shots of these things people wow. hugging people looking sad people yeah. that i need all your shots and they would like all these people contributing different shots you know there's, there's all my friends saying oh you can use i shot this at the at the Kumbh Mela a few years ago. How about this shot here? Oh, yeah, thanks. You know, like everyone was donating shots very generously, you know. Um, it was a real mishmash of of big borrowing and stealing images. Mm. Yeah, so you used a lot of public domain footage? Tons, tons yeah. and tons. And um, those animations of public domain. It's sort of stunning, the uh, footprint of Ramdas you know, even among people who wouldn't have grown up with him, like the, there's whole new generations of, of um, millennials that there's there's um, uh, some mojo there that has kind of got longevity to it. Uh, yeah, he's the Mozart of what he does. You know, that's that's why, <laughs> you know, that's why people still listen to Mozart for hundreds of years. You know, like mm-hmm. he is the boom. You know, he, there's no one who who says it deeper or more poignantly or more clearly than he does you know whatever subject you're talking about he'll say something and there's nothing really else to add you know uh-huh. he just gets the root underneath it and it's just like yeah you said it you know that's that says it you know like the crochet story that ends the movie um when you hear the crochet story it's almost like the whole of everyone's spiritual path and the whole point of spirituality is encompassed in that story once you hear the crochet story there's almost nothing there's always nothing to add you know what i mean like he just yeah. he just nails it and I, I know that for, as long as people are on spiritual, I mean, the whole now lineage, the present moment lineage, which is the, the great lineage, um, I always teased Ramdas because he had just done the Eckhart Tolle thing. And I, I always thought when Eckhart Tolle had all that success with the power of now, like if Ramdas was like thinking about suing him. Um, <laughs> Um, and uh, so when we were talking, I was like, I saw your conversation with your great disciple, Eckhart Tolle, <laughs> and he was laughing because he knew it was true. And he must have thought, because, you know, there were times at the end of Ramdas's life where they really had to take the hat around to still afford his house and all his carers. You know, they were not rolling in money mm. the way Eckhart Tolle is. And um, I well, know there he was. Tammy Simon introduced the two of them for that lecture series yeah. that they did together. And she had a great line. She said, here's what we got on this stage now. A whole lot of now. <laughs> that was a really good line. I love Tammy. A whole lot of now. Absolutely adore. Tammy Simon is such a wonderful being. I absolutely love her. Uh, um, but I'm, I'm like, you know, props to Randas that, you know, he was the first one to do the now thing a good 30, uh-huh. 40 years before the power of now was written. And, you know, like, I think that, you know, like it's, he must've sometimes thought fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's sweet in a way that it's like um, we had, there was a great uh, project called playing for change, which were these. Oh people, yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's basically not a ripoff, but a, but a kind of a copy of One Giant Leap, where we went I, around I, the world. I see why you would think that. Yeah. Yeah, and they they made a fortune. You know what I mean? And we were a little bit like, "You're welcome." <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Uh, did they, they did they ever that. did anybody ever say you know we were influenced by this sometimes that's never absolutely. the fans all did the fans were like yeah. having yeah. one giant leap this is what they did but playing for change never once acknowledged anything no well i wonder how buddha would feel 2500 years later at the end of the day our ideas are not ours let's be real you know it's an ego trip the truth the truth is we get very precious about that was my idea but what yeah. did you do to generate that idea nothing it popped into your head who gave it to you lakshmi god whoever knows. So like, you can't really take ownership. That's why when someone comes up and goes, oh, that album you made, it was changed my life. It's like, you always feel sheepish about it because you know, you didn't really do it. You received it. Yeah. I did a little um, thing last night for the Love Server Remember Ember Foundation. You know, they do their online satsang. Yeah. Uh, I've done, I've done one of those. It's beautiful. Yeah. The way they, they handle it so beautifully. I thought. So lovely. I did it last night at one in the yeah. morning, my time. Um, uh, right. It was it's called eight the, power, yeah. the Power of Yin. Ah, power of yin. Yeah, and it's all about how we receive our music. We receive, mm-hmm. our, we make ourselves available for the muse. We make ourselves available for our spirituality, but we don't do it. We don't generate it with our yang getting busy. We surrender and we listen and we're curious, yin qualities, and we receive a song. We receive a great idea. We receive a spiritual awakening. It's all receptive. It's it's the yin is where all the action is. Well, what do you think the purpose of the yang is then? To, to put into action what you've received and uh-huh. manifest it on earth. So the yin feminine goes, oh, this is what we need to do. We need to go over there. That's the yin, gets the inspiration, then says to the masculine yang, pack up the car and lead us all over there. <laughs> Buy the hammer and the nails and make one of these. So the yang kind of brings into form what the yin has decided. The masculine does what the girl says. <laughs> Have you noticed among our millennial friends that these characterizations are being challenged as as we speak yes we have in my teaching in my uh, in the insanely gifted school uh we don't use the word masculine and feminine uh, yin and yang anymore uh, that's them. interesting more receptive and active or something like that you just say yeah active and receptive or, or whatever yeah. you know the use of the will or the use of the receptiveness or the curiosity mm-hmm. you don't, because the you know but it's actually very interesting because there's there's yin yang, mm-hmm. and then there's wu chi. You know, like in in Taoism, yeah. there's the yep. super void within which it all sits, yeah. and it's almost like the yin yang dissolving into the wu chi is mm-hmm. is what's happening with the binary non-binary sexuality movement. Mm-hmm. Um, is that it's all kind of becoming one thing now, which is mm-hmm. a good thing. You know, um, I mean, I, I don't believe that everything has to be non-binary. You know, I know certain people that say, oh, masculine, feminine, it's all a construct. Well, it, it's not only a construct because certain people who are trans, they go through a very, you know, they, they go through a very, very extreme operation to have their genitals changed to be either a masculine or a feminine. So it's like, it obviously means something to them. You know, like, mm-hmm. I don't think you can dismiss it. If it didn't mean anything, then why would these people go through such an intense operation to go from one to the other, you know, obviously there's a difference. Um, so I don't think one should dismiss it and say that everyone has to be non-binary. Like if you, if you want to be in your heteronormal masculine and feminine reality, great. And if you're exploring non-binary, great, but none of them are right or wrong. Just, just do the one that is meaningful to you in your life. There's 7 billion 
human experiments going on concurrently on this planet, including murderers, thieves, rip-off <laughs> artists, uh, estate agents, people who are, you know, like extraordinary. I mean, I do find the whole thing a little bit extraordinary. Why there are so many muggles? That's my one question for God. Like okay. If, Let, let's if I get had one on. question. Let's get, so her on, let's get her on the phone and you can ask your question. Thank you. I would like to know. <laughs> like, I understand that there has to be all these different, but why have consciousness and the joy of the potential of, of consciousness and awakening and, and love and connectedness and, and surrender and all the amazingness that is available in all that world. Why have it as so niche? Like I understand like mm-hmm. it can't be everything, but why make it such a, a slither of experience and have 97% of the people going through life like a zombie thinking that materialism is important. And, you know, like, why is it so weighed so massively in, in, in that way? I, it's a big mystery to me. That's the one mystery. Well, there are many, but it's a huge mystery for me. Why so many muggles? Not well, why muggles, but why the proportions seem totally out of control. Uh, you know, there's a, obviously a bunch of different perspectives on what a muggle is or isn't. Um, you know, things like, does that per- person have Buddha nature, bodhicitta? Do they, do they have the potentiality for... I mean, everyone does. But Well, the, but okay, well, that's the, a powerful... Then they're, they're not just a muggle at that point. Well, they are if they never, ever, ever know about their Buddha nature. Their experience of this lifetime is a muggle experience. I'm not saying yeah. that's what they are, but like... Most of the people on this planet are in survival mode. You know, they're not thinking mm. about mm. awakening. They're thinking about lunch. Well, while you're on that topic, lately I've been watching animal shows, documentaries, because mm. there are many, many more beings that are in animal bodies, obviously, on, on this planet than in human bodies. And yeah. when you watch what they're into, you want to talk about survival mode. I watch this little hamster like running across a, a desert of snakes that were just trying to basically eat it, you know, wrap themselves amazing. around. That was the BBC. Yeah. Have you seen that? What an amazing shot with the music. What That was took wildlife to a new dimension, that sequence. Phenomenal. But, but you look at countless beings that are just really in survival mode. Yeah. So, you know, I, I wrote a book about the six realms. I don't know if you've ever looked at that topic, but it's a Buddhist, uh, the wheel of life. Uh-huh. And so there's the human realm and the animal realm and the hungry ghosts and the the uh, the hell realm beings and the gods and the jealous gods. And it's really portrait of karma and how these things get, you know, how you end up in a particular situation, in a particular realm. And uh, the premise is everybody's working through things over a kind of a fairly long arc. Um, yeah. But that it is know. it is a trap. It is it is. There is a sense that even the god realms are trapped, a kind of golden, yeah. golden trap. But the animals, yes. just looking at them surviving and going, well, wait a minute, we have part of that makeup too. Yeah. yeah. And, and Everybody. I, I don't don't like, you have I, a survival? Do you have a survival mode? Massively, especially in related. Like my all my dharma, like most of my trauma and, and kind of like struggle of my life is in my relational world. Mm. Uh, I, that's where I'm a hungry ghost. Mm-hmm. You know, my primal wounding. I won't bore, bore you about the patterning of what happened when I was in the womb and in adolescence and in my childhood life, but the patterns were set for um, a very sort of dysfunctional and empty experience of quite a lot of re-traumatizing through my relational life. Um, so that, that's where all my action is of, 
of self-soothing and 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 um playing out stuff that that hurts um and now you have three daughters and and uh you must have done a lot of work on your relational uh portfolio still going strong baby still processing a breakup from three months ago that still feels like a huge kick in the heart um sorry yeah yeah. Well, yeah, this is a mystery. I, I, I do have some questions. You know, I do ask the holy light bulb. Uh, you know, I, I have some questions yeah. about all that. Um, you know, I show up very devotionally, um, but I have definitely recreated certain aspects of repetitive neglect from and deceit and all the things that were going on when I was small. Mm. Um, it's a big mystery for me, but less of a mystery, you know, like I really do engage with the inquiry around all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, it's, it's, that's a big part of my, my, that's where the, that's where the challenges and the struggle of my human existence has mainly been centered. So maybe the title of your next album could be even muggles fall in love. <laughs> Which Actually, in the in the human realm, that is the sort of saving grace is that ability to feel that poignancy, that tenderness is kind of what connects everybody at the end of the day. Yeah. But yeah, and then the question after that is what what meanings do you attach to that? Mm. You know, nothing that's going to take you out of the moment quicker than falling in love. It's oh, like yeah. having lots of money. The moment you, you get a big paycheck, it's like, well, where do I put it? How can I keep it? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, and it's the same with anything precious. Where do I keep it? How can I keep it safe? How can I make sure it's eternal? It never decays. And it's the same with the relationship. Oh, you're finding someone else attractive. Is this beautiful thing that's making me feel safe going to be taken away? Am I safe? Am I safe without you? Um, you know, suddenly whatever you have that's precious, you, you part of us wants to keep and, and, and be immune to the immutable laws of everything changes. So it's yeah. even getting it is, is, is another trap. Well, that's very pure Buddhism, what you're saying right there. I know he steals all my ideas. What's that? Buddha steals all my ideas. <laughs> you know, that uh, attachment and ignorance create the ground of the suffering. Yes, yeah, so ignoring impermanence in, in, in what's being ignored is impermanence and the, that you can't grasp it. Yeah. So that's that's a, a but it's point. There's something about it that is so human at the same time. Do you feel that? Totally. And I want to really honor my humanity. Like I, I stroke my chest. And I go, hello, old friend. Here we go. Uh, you know, like, uh, just like, to, you know, everybody's a three year old. And, and the way to treat a three year old is. You know, constant encouragement. <laughs> you know, no exasperation. No point getting exasperated with a three-year-old. It's, it's not. It's not their problem. It's your problem. Ramdas talks about this. Recently, I saw a thing where he talks about the spiritual journey or whatever he was talking about. Uh, he was saying, you know, these are the stages: is you fall on your face, mm. you stand up, you dust yourself down, you look sheepishly at God, you carry on. You fall on your face, you get up, you dust yourself down, you look sheepishly at God, you carry on, and that's the cycle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, this is, uh, you know, there's going to be another retreat in December uh, at uh-huh. Maui. And, uh, you know, we're, we're registered to, to go, you know, I'm playing with KD at it, but uh, it's going to be poignant. Yeah. The fir- first one without him. Even, even, even just he was not 
sort of saying a lot and doing a lot at the last couple of them. Um, He was sort of starting to dissolve into the ether, even as we were looking at him. But um, it's, um, I I could see a tender moment there coming up if if this happens. The funny thing, when I heard that he passed, when they called me the next morning, because I was asleep in England when it happened, my first experience was joy. Mm. And I'm not saying that to sound spiritual, you know, like when my dad died very suddenly, my first experience was, oh, okay. Um, but like the first thing I felt, like it's like I saw his face when they told me, because I knew, everyone knew that it was imminent. Um, I saw his face a little bit like the Cheshire, Cheshire cat mm-hmm. from Alice in Wonderland, like the Cheshire cat dissolved, but the grin remained. The smile without like, a face. Yeah, so like I could see, I could just see his grinning mouth, even mm. though everything else had gone. The grinning mouth would never go, mm. and I kind of saw him like running into Maharashi's arms across mm. the lovely Golden Bridge, and like returning, letting go of all those old man pains and the, his aching mm. feet that he didn't like, and his cold toes, and his you know being free from all those bodily things, and just having that beautiful reunion with with his mother and with Maharaji. And like, I just thought, oh yeah, great. You know, if we believe, if we believe that the spirit goes on, then his death was a wonderful thing. You know, like he was released, he'd done enough. You know, he was old, he was hitting 90. Well, and he talked about it, I think in your film, about the death being like a shoe that's too tight. Yeah, and taking off, taking off an that. old shoe. I've been thinking about that for the last couple of days, actually, since I rewatched it, the, the uh, the film just I had seen it before, but I wanted to tune into it. And that that stuck with me because, you know, there's a lot of panic uh, when you think about uh, death and, and kind of groundless yeah. experience. Depends so who's thinking. Yeah, it, it could be your gut could be churning up too. I mean, it's there. There could be a lot of uh, evidentiary aspects to yeah. to it. Um, and he did he did really have a long and winding road back into that. Not everybody gets that. They sometimes, you know, they have to kind of hurry up and die. You know, he he took his uh, he took a good long time, and he had everybody. He was sort of showing, leading the way, I think, for how you might yeah. want to approach that experience. Yeah, I mean, um, in becoming nobody is the only movie that really talks about death so candidly. You know, it's mm-hmm. amazing. There isn't really any. There's the grief walker guy, um, who I've forgotten his name. Um, die wise was the book that he wrote and there's a lovely film about him called grief walker he's a super guy but there's very very little out there where where anyone can actually and a lot of people write to me after becoming nobody going oh my dad just died this film's mm-hmm. not so my mom's dying so we all watch the movie together like it, it really is a is the movie to get if someone's just died or someone's dying well you know i studied with trungpa rinpoche that was my teacher and no and, way yeah you hung so, out with him Oh, I I was a close student of his starting in 1970. Oh, so you would have been hanging out with Pema as well, were you friends? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And oh, uh, you lucky thing! I'm jealous. With, wow, that must have been so with, great. Well, and it's part of the work I'm doing now is just following through on that. But it started in 1970 when he first got here, and then there was this crossover with Ramdas. You know, so those sure. worlds were back then were sort of cro- like I remember Ramdas from uh, Karma Chilling Meditation Center up in Vermont. One of the first workshops Rinpoche gave there, Ramdas was there, and so this was a kind of coming round full. Now I didn't have a lot to do with him in the in between time with Ramdas, but then with Krishnadas, all of a sudden the last ten years I've been hanging out with Ramdas, um, and it was like the completion of a circle because it, we all started uh-huh. together. 
So, but wow. Trungpa Rinpoche, you know, um, obviously the Buddhists, particularly the tantric Buddhists, are going to talk about death quite a bit. And 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 um, Trungpa Rinpoche, when he passed away, he was sitting up in samadhi for about seven days after that, and and he shared that with his close students. So we saw that. And, wow, amazing. Uh, and and so you death know, I've section. had. Sorry, say it again. The you, death section of becoming nobody, which is about twenty-two, the last twenty-two, yeah. twenty-three minutes of the movie was an hour long. I was yeah. told twice by everybody that I had to shorten the death part. So it, it was about two hours. Some guy with a cigar in a Hollywood office. You know, hey, let's let's shorten like up on that death Everyone part. Too much death. Too much death. <laughs> the, death section was, the death section was an hour <laughs> of the film. And it had to be reduced to 23 minutes. Yeah. There's yeah. half an hour of primo death edit yeah. that got yeah. from that film. It's funny that one of the titles I wanted to call the movie, because it, originally it was called Walking Each Other Home, mm. but then the making of the movie, Ram Dass released a book called Walking Each Other Home, so they said we don't want to call it that anymore. Uh, so we were thinking of titles, and, and the title I wanted to go with was uh, Famous Last Words. Uh-huh. Yeah, the but, death. Uh, let's, let's, can we cut down on that death business there a little bit at the end? That's just super yeah. Super beautiful, funny. Of course, um, he he was a great example of somebody who died very openly mm-hmm. and shared that experience with a lot of people. Yeah. That's kind of um, not that common. No, you, I mean, it's like the you ultimate You get to partake group. in it. Yeah. It's really um, – and there were pictures of him the day before and stuff, and he was quite luminous, Ram Dass, you know? Yeah. He really looked like he was um, – uh, easing out into it, and um, you know, there's something in the Buddhist tradition that um, that uh, Trungpa Rinpoche talked about, where part of what happens to a body when when the when the person dies is there's a kind of loss of ground. Obviously, you're losing that really very familiar ground, and there's a kind of panic, and that's what rigor mortis is. He, he told us. Ah, so in other words, the body is, the body is just kind of seizing up like this, and ah. when 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 a realized person dies, the body just relaxes the heart center with Karmapa died. The heart center was soft for, for a long time. Uh, Rinpoche for days, soft heart center. And the rigmortis. They said the same. Yeah. It's because the, the, the being in there is not freaking out uh, yeah. and, and panicking basically. So the instruction is kind of don't panic. <laughs> Which yeah. is really good instruction. For like Emmanuel says, dying, yeah. tell them Ramdas, dying is absolutely safe. <laughs> Well, if it's safe unless you panic, and then it's, and that's true of living too, wouldn't you say? I still think that it's safe either way. Like, I mean, like my dad died very violently Mm. um, and um, by his own hand. And, um, and there are a lot of spiritual people, Christians and, and even Buddhists that, that that say, oh, you know, when that happens, they go to this place where the spirit mm-hmm. is lost. And it, mm-hmm. I think fuck those people. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, because, like, I believe in a in a compassionate God, you know, like or a compassionate system. And if somebody killed themselves, mm-hmm. that means that the angel at the well of pain that we all bring our bucket of pain to process on behalf of the whole human race to Earth didn't pay attention when that guy came through and they took too much. And I think the first thing that a spirit gets if it killed itself is an apology um, and a beautiful hospital 
for the spirit where their wounds are tended to by gorgeous angels and they're kind of put back on going go to a beautiful kind of rehab and they're looked after beautifully. This weird Christian Buddhist notion that they go to a lost in-between place where the spirit is, you know, it doesn't know who it is because it left on mm-hmm, a note. Mm-hmm, I say fuck those people. I just, I think they, they, yeah. they're just like still chucked. They're still stuck in a, in a judgmental, not mm-hmm, getting it mm-hmm, paradigm. Mm-hmm, and I think that's mm-hmm. where there are a lot of, Buddhism, Christianity, and all those things fall down horribly is they don't realize that at the end of the day, love, it's all made of love. Mm-hmm. And there's no way if there's any level of consciousness that a spirit that has suffered enough to end its own life goes anywhere but a beautiful hospital where it gets looked after and its wounds tended to and gets a special kind of rehab. Jamie, you and I have a lot in common. It's kind of intriguing to me. Um, my father also committed suicide. Mm, sorry that's an unusual thing to say but i yeah I, I, you know that's quite a powerful experience to to go through um well as a guy it is because you 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 know we all kind of unconsciously think that we're plotting the same path as our father so like mm. my dad like he did it at age 64 so like 64 is a is a year for me like am i going to get past oh that? you know i had that because my dad did it at 68 and i'm 73 yeah, so, so when you were 68, did it not? Did you not? Think, yeah, no, okay, it, it, it played. It played through a little bit, like oh, you know, I'm now walking on fresh snow. Is a little yes, bit. yeah, and you have to do that in any case with your parents. It's not just temporal, but you have to walk on fresh snow because your parents just set you up, and then you got to take the rest of the journey. Yeah. But I, I can see you. How old are you in your 50s or so? Next week I'm going to be uh, 53. Ah, okay, so you've got a while to contemplate it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 you know, I don't know about your your dad, but in my dad's case, there was a lot of physical pain. He had Parkinson's disease, very advanced, oh. and it was it was sort of a releasing from a very painful so it was physical. A bit more dignified. Yeah, my dad's thing was more like he built his castles on sand, and uh. when they, and when they all dissolved, he hadn't connected to anything that was left that was real and. Mm. Yeah, that was, you know, he hadn't really connected with his kids or his grandkids, and yeah. And so, like when he was when he lost his sort of wealth and his standing mm. he didn't in his in his model he didn't have anything left well and your 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 view is so different because you're saying none of that really matters like you've been saying that the whole which is what we all told him on the day he died he rang me he rang my brother he rang my sister and we all were in different countries and we all said exactly the same thing to him we said dad we love you. Okay. Just come and live with us. We're doing fine. Oh. No one wants any money from you. No one needs anything from you. Just come and be the granddad. The kids might crawl on you a couple of times, but we, no one needs anything from you. Just come and be with us. We'd love to have you. And we didn't know we'd all said that. We all afterwards said, wow, that's exactly what I said to him. All three of us said, come and live with us and just hang out. We don't need anything. We've got plenty of food and a nice room for you and the kids and the lovely, you know, And uh, but it just didn't compute for him that like his his model couldn't find value in that wow jamie that's deep mm. yeah and um but the flip side is you got you got the message um through his life example in a way you realize that that wasn't what it's about yeah absolutely you know um i I mean, of course, I love being a big shot like the next person. You know, don't get me wrong. I, I, I do love swaggering around 
and having money in my wallet. You know, I love to be the guy that paid for dinner for everybody. And, you know, like I, I do like people to see me as somebody who was successful out of crazy ideas out of my head, who never had to have a job. I feel quite proud of that, maybe mm-hmm. not in a very healthy way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think I, I don't know how I, I hope I'm not asking for trouble here, but I don't think I'm based basing my core value mm-hmm. on that. Mm-hmm. But I do like the thrill. Like I used to be in a group called Faithless, which was a, in Europe was a super successful band in the late nineties. We were like number one everywhere for about four years. And, um, and we used to have a, a motto because it was a Buddhist group. The, the rapper was a Nichiren Daishonin Buddhist. Oh. Yeah, and then Yoho Renge Kyo chanting every day, twice uh-huh. a day. Buddhist. All the lyrics, all the raps are at Buddhism. If you get the Reverence album, you'll love the lyrics. It'll blow your mind. Uh, so eloquent, so lyrical and incredible and beautifully delivered lyrics. Very positive. And, um, but we were like cameras flashing wherever we got off the tour bus and concerts to 50,000, 80,000. You know, we were big. And um, we used to have a motto which was thrilling, not meaningful. But just because it's not what you base, <laughs> just because it's not what you base your core value in, sure, doesn't mean you, you can't enjoy the ego trip of everyone thinking yeah. you're great and calling your name. Sure. You know, don't don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Go and have a really good ego trip and and love it. Just see it for what it is. But but have the thrill when you walk out on stage mm. and screaming or or you're number one in the charts and everyone wants to give you a platinum record or like you know enjoy that. But just don't make that what makes life important. Wow. I just had a flash memory of when I I got a gold record for Midnight at the Oasis and I was on a one-month retreat up in Northern California and Trunk Rinpoche came and I was reading that, you know, students put these That's kind of... That's not where you want to be when you get your gold record because Trunk Rinpoche is going to come and ruin well, it for you. Well, he didn't ruin it, actually. I found it enhancing, but here's what happened. I so I heard that, you know, it's traditional in, in Tibet, you give gold to your teacher, you know, in exchange for the teaching. So I thought, oh, I have a gold record here. Of course, it was just a piece of plastic. It was a gold plating. But um, so I offered it to him and he he took it and then he used it as a tray to serve drinks on. Brilliant. So Brilliant. Uh, that was a great moment. I felt very good about that, though. I mean, that was yeah. uh, that was a incredible. Yeah, it was an incredible way of those things coming together in, in a way I could relate to. But I do yeah. find sometimes spiritual people are, I'm here, happy to hear you saying this because sometimes the quote unquote spiritual community is kind of almost averse to celebration, to worldly, um, you know, yeah. uh, they they're see the it as like people, a trap, you know. They're the same people who are beating themselves up for being human. They're the same people that mm. look at their failure as failure. They're the same people mm. who think they should be evolving faster. They're the mm. same people who give themselves <laughs> a hard time when they didn't do enough yoga this week. Mm. It's all denying their humanity, you know, like that's my judgment anyway, and I, I mm. own it. But, you know, like Ramdas was very clear about, you know, don't deny your humanity. Mm. Stop trying to be so holy all the time. You've taken a human incarnation. How about being a human? And mm. being a human includes feeling needy and greedy sometimes. It includes feeling thrilled because everyone gave you positive feedback. It includes, you know, that's all part of being a human. If you can, like the Rudyard Kipling, if you can keep your head, you know, that poem, if – if, if you can enjoy it all, experience it all, but not be attracted or repelling. So what you're talking about is people repelling it. Yeah. If you're pushing it away, as Ramdas says, it's still got you. Mm. 
it's neither attracted nor repulsed. It's like I can go and be a pop star. I'm not running after it going, my life only has meaning when I'm a pop star. But neither am I pushing it away going, oh, I'm not a pop star. Don't lie much more holy than that. That's just as much of a trap. Just be right in the middle. Go, I had a fucking good time. Um, uh, I probably, you know, could have done a lot more drugs and womanizing than I did. That might be one of my regrets on my deathbed. <laughs> I, I, I kind of held off. Um, I, I, I didn't barely do any drugs or womanizing during mm-hmm, my mm-hmm. during my prime when I really yeah. could I could have really like done it all and I I, I regret that I didn't mm. um, I could you know I think that's my, one of my only regrets you know I could have really gone over the top there um, well there's still time I'm happy to report thank you yeah and thank there's you, um, you know um, Aging is uh, is not what you think it is. I'll just put it in those. No, terms. I know. I believe me. I'm already into it. Don't worry. I yeah. look myself in the mirror. I forgot my father's hands. I mean, yeah. the lucky thing is, I've never been a drinker. I don't know if it's a Jewish thing, but certain mm. Jewish people just can't drink alcohol. I'm one of them. Like one sip of a glass of mm. wine, and it's like equivalent half a bottle to someone else. Like I'm drunk. Yeah. Um, so I've got this pristine liver. I have not touched my liver. <laughs> uh, so I'm thinking of making a start on it and developing some immunity, you know, some, uh, what do you call it? Um, not immunity. Like when you have resistance, you know, you get used to something. Um, yeah. I was thinking of like trying getting into alcohol. Like I've never, I've never done that. So I've got an absolutely untouched liver. It might be time to try that. <laughs> on that note, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Jamie's liver. Um, Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed meeting you. Likewise. And uh, I I feel like we could spiral on. Um, I just want to ask you, what is your favorite way for people to say your last name? Because I've heard a couple of different takes on it. Gatto. Yeah. Gatto. Like Gatto. uh, That's what I would have thought. My granddad was called Finkel. Uh, He Ah. was a famous author in his day in the 40s and 50s. A lot of his books got made into like Hollywood boom movies. And uh, he was worried that having such a Jewish name would get in the way of his uh, career. Because Gatto so, is Italian, isn't it? Sort of more. Yeah. So he was just walking down the street and he saw a chemist, a pharmacy lorry go past Catto chemists from Scotland. He went, oh, that looks good. Uh, and he changed the oh, name. Oh, that's, that's so illuminating because, yeah, I thought, well, that's kind of an Italian name. But um, there you go, Jamie Finkel. Um, Jaime Finkel at your service. <laughs> <laughs> my friend said that my film company muzzles off manifestations uh, well i think yeah. this is even a better note to end the podcast on so Wonderful. is there anything that you want to let people out there who are listening know about or you know well i mean um, come to my website if you ever want to join in on anything no one's ever turned away for money reasons jamiecato.com but above all please please just really 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 watch your self-talk that's if you're not going to do anything else, really keep an eye on your self-talk. If you're talking to yourself in an exasperated way or an angry way or a, or a sort of passive aggressive, oh, I really thought I was past this stuff, um, then it means you're asleep. Yeah. If you're treating yourself in any other way other than rubbing your chest and going, oh, you're <laughs> lovely, right? If, if you're doing anything other than treating yourself with absolute sweetness and adoration and like sort of allowing yourself all your failures, perceived failures as, as more adorable than the last, then it means you're asleep. So just if you're not going to do anything else for the planet, please really keep an eye on your self-talk and sweeten it whenever you possibly can. 
What a lovely prescription. Thank you so much. And it was really nice to meet you and get to know you a little bit. And I hope it's not the last time. Let's stay in touch. I'll send my WhatsApp deets to your email and like, just let's be friends. Okay, Jamie. Have a, have a, have a wonderful have evening. Okay. Take good care. Well, there you have it, folks. Episode number 23 of the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast. We sincerely hope that you've enjoyed listening to it as much as we have enjoyed making it. I know for me personally, that last little nugget that Jamie shared about treating ourselves gently with our perceived failures and self-talk really came in handy when I was recording the intro as, how do you pronounce excerpt? Excerpt? Excerpt. How do you put that P right next to the T without having it like kind of snap all over the voiceover on the microphone? Anyway, I'll continue exploring these questions on my own journey, and I hope you continue exploring your questions and your journey with mindfulness and gentleness. As always, if you like what you hear here and are interested in exploring further and potentially joining us in community, studying and practicing together, head over to dharmamoon.com where you can see our full listing of upcoming program. We have mindfulness meditation teacher trainings running all year, as well as new programming for foundations of mindfulness. If you don't want to take that big leap into being a teacher and you just like to deepen your own practice. Also, big thank you to Melissa Mattern, our co-producer, and everyone at the Be Here Now Network. If you appreciate this podcast, thank you. We encourage you to subscribe on your favorite podcast provider and leave a positive review as it, uh, it helps us help you. So that concludes episode number 23. Thank you for listening. May you be safe, healthy, happy, and at ease. All the best. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest? Are you holding on to secrets, fears, or frustrations? We all carry around different stressors, both big and small. Don't keep it all bottled up inside. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's also a great way to learn to resolve conflict, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.